0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. This show is headed down your feed on June 5th, 2023, and I'm here to tell you congratulations. Today was supposed to be the X date in Washington, the day the federal government would hit the debt ceiling and run out of money to pay its bills. But last week, Congress did something it has trouble doing much of the time. It came to an agreement. Inside of seven days, new spending legislation went from the negotiating table through the House, over to the Senate, and then back to President Biden to be signed into law. So, Pamela... We have a debt limit deal. It's flown through Congress. Are you celebrating? So I think on the whole,
1: yes. (laughs) Right. Because default, um, especially for vulnerable populations, really would have been catastrophic economically. Pamela
0: Hurd is a professor of public policy at Georgetown University, the kind of person who reads the fine print when it comes to spending agreements like this one. For the last few weeks, she has been particularly focused on one element of this debt limit deal, work requirements. This new legislation expands the number of people who have to prove that they're doing enough to access cash welfare and food aid. This was one of the thorniest issues negotiators talked about. Progressives said any work requirements were a non-starter. Conservatives wanted to extend work requirements to programs like Medicaid. In some ways, Pamela says... She's surprised these cuts didn't go
1: farther. I mean, it's been on the Republican agenda work requirements, I mean, for decades. And in recent years, I do think there's been a much uh, more aggressive conservative push to generically add work requirements or expand work requirements and programs that already had them.
0: You're saying it's actually a logical endpoint.
1: Yes, it's a logical endpoint given where the political discourse has been going.
0: But just because Pamela anticipated this turn of events, it doesn't mean she liked it very much. She says there's good data showing that work requirements don't really help people get back to work, which is why it's a coup that Republicans were able to squeeze work requirements in here at all. Do you feel like the people who voted on this deal understand what these new work requirements will actually mean for people?
1: I don't believe that a lot of people understood how harmful they might be.
0: How worried are you about what happens now?
1: I, I am genuinely very worried. Yes, it could have been so much worse. Um, and I'm, you know, we, we absolutely, <laughs> we can't default on the de- <laughs> Catastrophic for everyone. Um, But at the same time, people didn't quite understand um, how vulnerable this group was.
0: Today on the show, caving on work requirements may have saved the economy, but they probably still aren't a good idea. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. Where did the idea of work requirements for government benefits come from in the first place?
1: So work requirements emerged sort of starting in the 1970s. Historically, social welfare benefits in the U.S. were really meant to protect poor single mothers. And the basic idea was that poor single mothers were contributing by raising their kids, right?
0: So they kind of had a job.
1: Exactly. They had a job, which was raising their children. The idea was you're contributing by raising the next generation of citizens. And so it's our obligation to make sure that you're kind of supported while you do that. So in practice, what that meant, right, was that if you um, were working, you didn't need benefits. The only reason to have social welfare benefits was if you weren't working. Starting in the 1970s, late 1960s, This sort of ideology started to change, where instead there was this sense of um, poor single mothers should actually be working.
0: The idea of the quote-unquote welfare queen.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone
1: numbers to collect food stamps, social security, veterans' benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare.
0: Her tax-free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a
1: year. So the idea was that poor single mothers had an obligation to be employed, that they were just effectively cheating the system by receiving welfare. I think it is not an insignificant point That this sort of ideology about making poor women work, about the kind of idea of a welfare queen cheating the state, emerged just as the civil rights movement emerged and just as we started seeing Black women much more able to actually access social welfare benefits.
0: Hmm. So when it was like white ladies with kids needing help, that's one thing. But when more Black people can access the benefits, that's something else.
1: Yeah. And there really is some good kind of historical evidence to support um, that interpretation of what happened.
0: Huh. I guess it doesn't seem like a crazy idea to me that if you're able-bodied and you're getting government benefits, there should be some idea that you're looking for work or – or you're, you're, you have a job, something something like that. But like, where does this idea break down? Because I think the reason why work requirements persist is there's a kind of sense it makes if you look at it. But I'm wondering where that sense stops making sense.
1: The gist of it is that they don't work. <laughs> so it sounds great um in practice or in theory it sounds great if you if you are of the ideology that like no i'm sorry people should have to be employed um work requirements don't work. Work incentives do work, but the actual kind of work requirements, like what they've passed recently, um, don't work very well. What happens instead uh, effectively is people who um, really need those benefits don't end up with access to them, and they also don't end up employed either.
0: The interesting thing to me about work requirements coming up in this debt ceiling negotiation is that we have this specific recent example of how work requirements actually impacted people getting government aid. Because back in 2018, the Trump administration approved Medicaid work requirements in Arkansas. Can you tell me how that happened in the first place and then what happened when it did?
1: So a bunch of uh, conservative states had actually been itching to do this, to add work requirements. And then under the Trump administration, um, they they allowed states to apply for a waiver so that they could apply work requirements in their Medicaid program. Um, one of the first states that was approved to do this was, was Arkansas. And the, the gist of what happened in Arkansas was that it was a complete disaster. Hmm. <laughs> So basically, um, nearly kind of one in four of those subject to the work requirements uh, lost their coverage over a period of just seven months. Um, And what we realized, even just as importantly, is that of those who lost coverage, most of them were actually working Hmm. (laughs) or disabled or met some other criteria for why they should have been accepted from that rule.
0: So why weren't they getting what
1: they needed? They weren't getting what they needed because this sort of the process of like proving that you're working or proving that you have an exception to those requirements is just really onerous, complicated, confusing. Um, and people don't actually even know sometimes like part of what happened in Arkansas is that like a lot of people on Medicaid just like had no idea this was happening and no idea that they needed to do this. And then the processes to actually go ahead and document that they were working or document that they were disabled were incredibly convoluted. And so what happened in the end, basically, was there was no increase in labor force participation. It was just like a bunch of people lost coverage who weren't supposed to lose their Medicaid coverage. Um, So I think it was a real eye-opening experience um, to see how this would play out if we actually did it.
0: Yeah, I mean... I think the numbers I saw were, you know, 10,000 people or so were required to report their work and only 1,400 actually satisfied their reporting requirement, which implies in some ways people are opting out themselves either because they just don't know they need to opt in or because it's so onerous to prove that you are eligible for Medicaid that you just kind of throw up your hands and say, Ugh, I guess I'm not going to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean – A lot of it is uh, people don't know. It's actually very difficult to find people, to notify them. Um, Low-income populations move around a lot. Um, States are not always good about keeping track of where they are. Um, to notify them of things that they need to do. And then even when they notify them, the processes are so confusing or sometimes deliberately onerous. It, it's not even just that people give up. It's even when people are trying to do it, they ju- they can't get through the process. And we have tons of evidence of this. this it's not like what happened in Arkansas in some ways um, was generically a surprise. We have tons of evidence of how these kind of uh, what I call administrative burdens, really, like, hang people up and prevent them from accessing benefits and services for which they're supposed to receive um, and for which they really, really need. Yeah. Did Arkansas keep their work requirements in place for Medicaid? Uh, no. The, the When the Biden administration came in, they, they ended the potential for states to impose work requirements.
0: Hmm. You know, from the beginning with this debt limit negotiation... President Biden said he was not interested in work requirements for Medicaid. Was that because of what we know about what happened in Arkansas?
1: I think in part. Sometimes, like, you do actually need these things to happen for that specific program, for that specific population, for people to really believe that that's what the consequences will be. So, yes, I think in terms of the politics, especially among Democrats, it was, um, I think, pretty chilling to see what happened in Arkansas, and really gave people some backbone to really push hard about preventing that from happening going forward.
0: After the break, how does this debt ceiling deal change work requirements? And what impact is that going to have on vulnerable populations? To Pamela Hurd, one of the funny things about these new work requirements is that the United States is not exactly doling out cash welfare right now. That means that even though this new debt deal puts a few new work requirements in place for TANF, that's the Temporary Aid for Needy Families program, no one thinks that's going to have much impact on anyone's bottom line. Because we just aren't giving that much aid to needy families in the first place. But Pamela says it's important to pay attention to the changes this debt ceiling legislation puts in place for the SNAP program, sometimes known as food stamps. To be clear, SNAP's already got work requirements too. Most participants have to work at least 80 hours a month. This new bill just changes who can get exempted from them.
1: Let me actually start out with a positive, which is that um, they actually exempted some populations from work requirements. So they exempted um, homeless populations, children just exiting the foster care system, and veterans. Um, So those exemptions are really important.
0: Are those populations that have had real trouble getting access to the food support they need over
1: the last few years? Exactly, exactly. Homeless populations and kids leaving foster care in particular really struggled um, to access SNAP in part because these work requirements um, are difficult to navigate even if you were meeting them. And, you know, you're looking at like a 19-year-old kid exiting the foster care system on their own. This same thing, I think, for homeless populations, just in a different way. You know, even if you were meeting that work requirement, I mean, think about trying to navigate complicated administrative processes, finding paperwork, submitting forms, going online to submit your forms. Think about doing that when you're homeless. Hmm.
0: Yeah. So these carve outs, in your opinion, they're a good thing, but then there are also the restrictions. So let's talk about those. How how does the debt limit deal restrict who can get access to SNAP or food benefits?
1: Yeah. So this is the real downside. Um, And so effectively, right, all of what I just said about um, kids coming out of foster care, homeless populations, like why Those work requirements are so bad for them. Um, What we did, unfortunately, is we took them away for those groups, which is great. But then we added that same set of complications for another vulnerable population. So we're shifting the burden. Exactly. We're shifting the burden from those populations to just this new vulnerable population.
0: This new vulnerable population is adults over the age of 50. At the moment, pregnant people, people with kids, disabled people, they are all exempted from work requirements for SNAP. So are people over the age of 49. This age restriction, it basically acknowledges that as you get older, work is harder to come by. But this debt ceiling deal, it adjusts the age limit. Now it's going to be people over the age of 54 who are exempted from work requirements. That may seem like a pretty minor increase. It's only a few years. But Pamela says, this is a bigger deal than you might think.
1: So, the basic issue is that people starting in their late 40s, um, and particularly this population age 50 to 54 who now have work requirements, they face effectively both rapidly accelerating declines in their health. Um, so, if you look at that population, for example, among those most likely to be eligible for SNAP, so people under 200% of the poverty level, about half of them have a work-limiting disability. So they're facing both pretty rapid declines in their health, and they're also facing an increasingly um, inaccessible uh, disability safety net system. But the gist is it's the intersection between these two things. There are
0: exemptions to this, right? Like if you have a disability, if you're sick— You should be able to get these food benefits no matter what, right?
1: Exactly. And so, yeah, theoretically, it should be fine. Well, you can qualify based on a disability. So what's the big deal? The problem is the process of actually proving you are disabled. That's the problem. And that process of proving you are disabled can take years.
0: So you're saying the work requirements here, they're problematic because they're hitting people who are going to have trouble getting work in the first place, They're also people who are more likely to be disabled and unable to work. And even though they should be exempted because of that disability, they should be able to get these benefits no matter what, they're entering a system that isn't ready for them, that isn't getting them their benefits on time and where it's hard to prove that you deserve these benefits.
1: That's right, exactly. And we already actually know this happens. So, people, for example, who are applying to disability programs under the Social Security Administration, um, and that's effectively how you would have to approve disability to get SNAP. Just to give you a sense about what that looks like, just the initial application alone takes seven months to process. So, you put in an application, just that initial application takes seven months. And then on top of it, so about a third of the people who initially apply and get benefits will be rejected at first. So what goes on, like you've, you've managed to get all the paperwork together to apply, which takes longer than a month, actually. Then you wait seven months and then you get a denial. So then you reconsider, you apply for a reconsideration. That takes on average six months. You'll probably be denied. Then you, up, you go to before an administrative law judge. That takes a year and three months.
0: I mean, you've said that 10,000 people die every year waiting for their disability application to be processed.
1: That's right. Yeah. So that waiting period, right, like to prove you're disabled enough, (laughs) Um, what happens during that period is that the only social safety net that people have that they can go to pretty much is SNAP. It's It's the food stamp program. And we've just ripped that away from people. That safety net is gone.
0: These work requirements,
1: the new ones, they expire after a few years, right? They do. Um, The exceptions expire, too. I believe it's in 2030. And so, you know, um, I have some hope that we'll have, um, well, right, this is the killer, right? Like, I have some hope that we'll see enough people suffer that they'll change it. I mean, is that really where we are? Um, But I guess that's where we are.
0: Yeah. You know, there's one more thing I want to focus in on before we go. We talked about how work requirements don't do one of the things Republicans say that they want them to, which is drive people into the workplace. But there's something else that Republicans hope work requirements will do, which is by sort of narrowing the pathway to getting benefits it'll bring down the costs of social welfare programs, save money. But we've gotten this CBO score from the Congressional Budget Office. Is there evidence that these work requirements we've been talking about are actually going to save the U.S. government money?
1: Well, I think it's complicated, right, because we reduce them for some groups and increase them for other groups. What it would sort of generically say, though, is one thing that we do know is that when you add the sort of – um complicated things like work requirements or other kinds of like complicated conditionality, it requires you to spend a lot more money <laughs> to actually process those cases. And I think there is, um kind of going back big picture, I mean I think there's a, a fair bit of evidence if you look historically over time that for sure, you know, we use social welfare benefits to help people, but we sometimes <laughs> use uh, social welfare benefits to punish people. Um, and I think it's hard not to look at the disconnect between the costs associated with these kinds of requirements and the lack of benefits associated with them and kind of not come to the conclusion that this is just feels a bit more like we're just trying to punish people.
0: Pamela Heard, I'm really grateful for your time and for your research. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you
0: very much. Pamela Hurd is a professor of public policy at Georgetown University. She is also the co-author of Administrative Burden, Policymaking by Other Means. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus,